In the fall of 1999, I started my freshman year at Penn State University. I enrolled as a chemical engineering student, but for my humanities requirement, right, even in the sciences, you had kind of your gen, gen eds that you had to take, I started taking religious studies courses as well. Four years prior to that, when I was a freshman in high school, I had had this very dramatic experience with God and had become a Christian. And in those four years of high school, I had devoured my Bible, but really lacked any kind of mentorship or community. And so now as a freshman at college, I was excited to have the opportunity to expand my biblical understanding with a college-level course in the New Testament, because that's the first course I took, New Testament Theology. Now, I was not prepared, actually it wasn't New Testament theology, it was just a study, introduction to the New Testament. There was no, no theology in it. I wasn't prepared, though, for what that class represented. Now, I, I probably should have known better, right, because, you know, Penn State is a public university, but from the very first lecture, the content seemed situated to attempt to undermine the faith of its listeners. So much so that a year later, when I was involved in a campus ministry organization, I was warned not to take Dr. Peterson's class, or classes. Dr. Peterson was the head of the religious studies department. They, they suggested that his goal in those classes was to make kids, students, lose their faith. Well, I decided to stick with it. I ended up with, I think, four out of my six, or I don't remember how many I took. I think it was six um, for my minor but I graduated with a minor in religious studies classes. And Dr. Peterson, even though he was an atheist, he wrote one of my letters of recommendation for seminary. His classes were the first place that I was taught to critically think about my faith. Right? The challenge that he brought in week in and week out tested my faith and forced me to do independent research to confirm some of the presuppositions that I was bringing into that class. I would actually argue that that experience made my faith stronger because I was forced to go and, and, and do that, that extra research to figure it out instead of just jettisoning it like some students did or like what he wanted. Now, as we studied the New Testament, one of the primary themes by the historians that we read was an attempt to demythologize the Gospels, right? Demythologize, take the myth out. Anything that smelled of the miraculous was removed from the equation. You know, for example, in their biased worldviews, healings can't happen. So they were either faked or invented, right? You have that water-to-wine story in the Gospel of John, and they would suggest that well, this, was, this was a later invention by that apostle, right? Maybe some of these things, for instance, the feeding of the thousands with the, the loaves and bread, it wasn't literally that people ate their fill, but that Jesus inspired them. It was symbolic that Jesus inspired them to share their goods with one another, right? There was always some other way to read it so that the miraculous was not present. Now, this included the demythologizing the person of Jesus Christ. If you're an atheist, like Dr. Peterson was, teaching a religious studies course, you have a strong bias that there is no God. Therefore, Jesus cannot be God incarnate, but merely a, a great moral teacher who's been elevated 
to the state of legend. You know, one of the En Vogue studies of the 90s, 1990s, was, was this group called the Jesus Seminar. And, you know, they had this quest to find the historical Jesus. And they looked at the gospel, and they, they I don't know how they thought that 2,000 years later they could determine what it was that Jesus actually said and what was invented by the disciples. But they looked at all the teachings of Jesus. For instance, the Lord's Prayer. The only line in that that they say that is authentic that Jesus said was, Our Father. That's it. I hope, you, I hope I'm being clear enough, at least in, in the way that I'm dealing with this, that I think it's a load of rubbish. But, but uh, this is the, the, the kind of vat that I was soaking in my freshman year of, uh, of, of college. Because right? the end goal for them was to separate this historical person who was Jesus from this being that the early church worshipped as God. Right? We live in an age that it has a diminishing perspective of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Now, last week I shared that we were returning for two weeks to this thing called the New City Catechism. It's a modern question-and-answer tool used to help believers better uh, learn the essentials of the faith, be able to recite them, take them in. And last week and this week, we're focusing on something that's called the hypostatic union. It is the union of the two natures of Jesus Christ. Jesus somehow has these two natures fused into one, that he is at the same time God, fully God, and fully man. Not a mixture of the two, but 100% human and 100% divine. Now, last week we focused on the humanity of Jesus. This week we're going to look at his divinity. So here's the, the question and answer that they give us. Question 23, why must the Redeemer be truly God? And here's their answer. That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. And also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. All right, I want to break our time into just a few parts this morning. First, I want to make a case both biblically and philosophically for the divinity of Jesus Christ. Secondly, I want to describe how his divinity makes his obedience and sacrifice, in the words of the Catechism, perfect and effective. What does that mean? And lastly, why his divinity lends itself to his resurrection and why that should give us hope. Now, as I said a few moments ago, we live in an age where there is a diminishing perspective of Christ's divinity. There is historical evidence of this influential man, this person named Jesus. As much as people may not like Jesus, they can't erase him from history. He lived and existed. He wasn't a myth. But many like to think of him as just a, a great moral teacher, you know, like Gandhi, Confucius, whoever it might be. But nothing more than that. So before we get to the why of his divinity, I think it's important and wise for us to take a few moments to explore why a belief in Je that Jesus was God is not just wishful pie-in-the-sky thinking, but that the authors of the Bible were fully convinced that he was God in the flesh. So just a few scripture passages for you that highlight his div divinity. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Colossae, specifically warned his readers 
that there would be those who would try to usurp the truth about Jesus. This comes from Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So it sounds like they had some of the same type of issues that we did in this day and age, that people like to teach different things than what Jesus taught. And then he continues in this, verse 9, For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Did you catch that? Paul is arguing that in the person of Jesus Christ dwells the fullness of God. While Jesus walked the earth in a human physical body, he never stopped being God as well. The Gospel of John opens with a clear proclamation of just who this Jesus figure is for his readers. John refers to Jesus in his passage as the Word. The word, the logos, is the Greek word that's used. It's a term that was highly recognizable in Greek philosophy of his day. And and John applies it to Jesus. He's helping those who don't have a background in understanding Yahweh or the Messiah understand how Jesus is this completion of their worldview. He says this. This is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and then verse 14. In the beginning was the Word. Again, anytime I say Word, hear Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him there was not anything made that was made. It's a little wordy there. Verse 14, And the Word became, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right, so John is using these, this kind of cultural relevant Greek philosophy of his day to make the appeal that Jesus is of the same essence, the same substance as God. The Word, who was God, took on human flesh and lived among us. Now, in fact, if you read the Gospel of John, the broad strokes of his Gospel points very clearly to the divinity of Jesus. There's something called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And and they're called that because there's a lot of similarity between them. There's similar stories. There's certain places where clearly they used each other as resources in the formation of of the Gospel. There's points where they they agree verbatim. They plagiarized off of each other. And that's not a bad thing. But those Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a tendency to show a little bit more of this human side of Jesus. Like, yes, he works miracles. He, he says and does only things that God can say and do. But it's a little bit more implied. It's hidden behind the text. Now, John, on the other hand, is much more overt, showcasing that Jesus was not only human, but was also God in the flesh. Many speculate that, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were the earliest of the Gospels written. Mark probably was the first of, of them, written about a decade and a half after Jesus' death. John wasn't written until several decades later. And, and, and a lot of folks speculate that John is specifically writing very differently than the others because he wanted to provide different facets. Right? He wanted to give a different account, a complementary account from what Matthew, Mark, and Luke had shared. Now, while it's great for individuals who write about Jesus to make the case that he's God, there's been a number of skeptics who have suggested that, well, 
You know, they're just making this stuff up. Jesus himself never claimed to be God. But there's clear examples, multiple times in the Scripture, where Jesus very clearly makes the case that he is one with the divine. How about John 10? John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. Don't think you can get much clearer than that. But there's more implicit cases as well. A few chapters before, John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to the Jews about their father, the patriarch Abraham, kind of the father of all Judaism. And Jesus says this, eight, this is John 8, 56 to 58. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now to us, if we just read that in English, we're just, it just looks like Jesus is bad at grammar. You know, like, before Abraham was, I was, I existed. But the fact that he used this term, I am, and there's some I am statements that Jesus makes. I am the vine and the branches. I am the good shepherd. And I think we're going to look at those this fall. But they're, they're formulaic. They're meant to evoke in, in people a remembrance of God's name in Exodus chapter 3, right? The, the burning bush story. Moses goes to it, and Yahweh says, I am who I am. Right? Tell them I am has sent you. So Jesus right there is very clearly stating that he is one with the Father. Before Abraham was, I'm God. I was God. Now, in either of these cases, the message is clear to the audience. It was crystal clear that Jesus was claiming to be God because in both examples, the people around him immediately picked up stones in order to kill Jesus. They knew account of what they believed to be blasphemy when they heard it. Jesus is claiming divine status. The question is not, did Jesus ever claim to be God? The question is, was Jesus who he said he was? Now, I've benefited from the the philosophical argument that I first heard from C.S. Lewis. It's been used by individuals such as Josh McDowell and and, uh, Tim Keller. Jesus claimed to be God, and there's, there's three logical outcomes of that. Either Jesus is who he says he is, right? He is Lord. Or he is a liar, deceiving all of us. Or thirdly, he is off of his rocker and is a lunatic. Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Keller likes to add another L in there, legend, that he disputes. Now, if you read the Gospels, Jesus does not come across them as not being in his right mind. In fact, the portrait of him in the Gospels seems to be that he is usually the one character in those stories who is in regular control of his faculties, his emotions. Jesus is not a lunatic. Now, could Jesus be a liar? That's always a chance. That he knows that he's not God, but continues to pretend to be. But that hypocrisy would taint the words of wisdom that he provided. I hope you can see that the one thing that Jesus cannot be is a great moral teacher. Because if he is lying, then there is nothing moral about anything that he says. But if he isn't lying, then we have to acknowledge through logic that he is who he says he is, that he's God incarnate. And and this, this takes faith. We, we can't, 
I can, can't write an equation up here or give you proof that you're going to say without a shadow of, beyond a shadow of a doubt that you know with certainty that Jesus is God. I believe that with all of my heart. But that, that's the element of faith. Right? Faith is, is putting our trust in the things that we can't see, knowing that God is faithful, the things that we sang this morning. Now, I know I've spent more than half of my time talking about this, but this is something that I've heard regularly, right? And I wanted to provide a little bit of extra focus for us on the legitimacy of continuing to hold fast to the deity, the divinity of Jesus Christ. Now, for the rest of our time, I want to glance back at the catechism and look at the the ramifications of Jesus' death because of his divinity, right? Why was it important that Jesus' death was not just a, a merely righteous man dying, but that he is also God. So just, just to remind you, I'll put these back on for a minute. Here's the answer that they gave. This is why it's important that he's God. That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective, and also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. So the first consequence of his divinity is that it made his obedience and suffering perfect and effective. Because Jesus was God, his perfect obedience and his substitutionary atonements, his sacrifice, are able to be applied to us. Now, this this is similar to what we talked about last week. Last week we saw that because of his humanity, His obedience, his righteousness, his suffering was able to be transferable to us. And and maybe think about that in terms of a qualitative uh, analysis. Jesus was able to hand off his righteousness and take on our guilt because he was qualitatively like us in his humanity. But his divine nature, perhaps think about a little bit more like a quantitative analysis. If Jesus died to shoulder the sins of the world, then those have to be some pretty hefty shoulders to carry that weight. If you have countless billions of people, a seemingly infinite number of sins that you are clearing the debt for, that can only be done by an infinite being. You or I, if we were able to live a perfect life, wouldn't be able to, perhaps we could shoulder our own load but not the load of everyone else. Only God himself could bear the sheer magnitude of offenses upon himself. But look at it another way. Only a divine being could provide forgiveness. Our sins are against God. And if our sins are against God, then only God can forgive those sins. Think about it this way. Let's say my brother calls me up, and he flies, uh, flies off the handle at me. He calls me all kinds of terrible names, wounding me. My brother would never do that, but just, let's just hypothetically speaking. But later he realizes his mistake, and he comes back to me and says, you know, Chris, I don't know what I was going through. I don't know what I was thinking. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? Now, I have it within my power to extend that forgiveness to him. I can absolve him of his offense to me. But let's say we're at a family Thanksgiving meal, and that that brother of mine gets all worked up again. But this time, he unfurls the tirade against my wife, Sarah. 
Now, how far would it go for him to call me up again and say, Chris, I shouldn't have said those things about Sarah. Will she forgive me? Why are you asking me, right? I can't speak on behalf of Sarah. I can't clear his conscience with his apology to me. If he wanted to feel that and experience that forgiveness, he would have to go to Sarah. He'd have to go to her and apologize in order to receive that forgiveness. I, can, I cannot express forgiveness on behalf of someone else. I can only offer forgiveness if I have been offended or victimized in some way by the offending party's actions. So in order for Jesus to effectually forgive sins, he must be the offended party. Take the story in Mark 2. It's, it's a great story. I love it. There are a bunch of friends, and they have this other friend who is paralyzed. And they hear that this guy, Jesus, is going to be in town, and he's worked all kinds of crazy miracles before. They say, heck, this, this friend of ours is, is paralyzed. We doesn't, wouldn't hurt to try. Let's go visit this guy. So they, br- they bring their friend to this teacher. Now they get to the location where Jesus is, and the house is packed, but undeterred. I mean, talk about boldness. They climb onto the roof. Now their roofs would have been flat. They wouldn't have been, you know, peaked like ours. It would have been a flat roof. Uh, probably stairs going up to it because you would throw parties on the roof. But they get up to the roof and they rip it open. They start pull, peeling back the, the wood and the clay that is, that is covering the roof and they lower their friend down on, on a pallet. I don't know whose house this is. I don't know what he was thinking or she was thinking at the time. So this paralyzed guy has been lowered down in the middle of the room on a pallet and Jesus sees him and he sees the faith of the friends and he does something unexpected. Now, he doesn't heal the guy, at least not at first, but he says, sons, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus forgives his sins. Now, there are some of those religious elites that are present at this gathering, and they start scoffing to themselves. Internally, they're thinking like, who do you think you are? Only God can forgive sins. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus puts a test saying, which is more difficult to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And the man did. He got up, picked the pallet he was lying on and left. Right? It was the faith of the friends that healed his soul but it was the unbelief of the Pharisees that healed his body. Kind of an interesting nuance there. But the point is that forgiveness that came from Jesus could only come in any real or tangible way if Jesus was God incarnate. Billions, if not trillions, of people throughout history have trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. He is able to offer a limitless supply of righteousness and grace because of his divinity, because he is a limitless being. But the catechism also gives us one more insight into his divinity. That because Jesus was God, he is able to weather the wrath of God and yet overcome death. Jesus died for us, but because he was God, he wasn't able to stay dead, coming back to life that first Easter morning some 2,000 years ago. 
In Colossians chapter 1, Paul is waxing eloquently that Jesus is the image, right? The tangible expression of the invisible God. And he says that he is the firstborn from the dead. That Jesus was the first fruits of the harvest that was coming. That the very shackles of death were cast aside. I know we've got some gardeners in here. But if you're a gardener, let's just say, I, I'm thinking about our backyard, we've got a strawberry bush back there, and you get that first, that, you see that first strawberry come through. It starts off kind of white green, and then it turns red. You're excited. It's a delight to see because the first, especially strawberries, right, they are homegrown, much better than store-bought. So it is the, a delight to have just in the fact that it's a strawberry, but you also get excited because you know that more is on the way. It is a sign that there is more to come. In Corinthians 15, 54 and 55, Paul is speaking of this burden of death that has been thrown off by Jesus. And he cites, he says, death where, he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? And those, that comes from two different verses from the Old Testament. Right? First, Isaiah 25, 8 describes this promise of God that would be fulfilled in Jesus, that death would be swallowed up forever. But secondly, Hosea 13, 14, right, that's where it says, death, where is your sting? This is a prophecy that is written almost mockingly towards death, right? It's like some trash talk. God's like getting up and saying, death, where are you at? I don't know, this, this is kind of silly, but I don't know if you guys know WWE at all, but there's this guy named John Cena, who's a wrestler there. He's, he's been in a couple movies too. But he's got this like trademark move where he's like, you can't see me. He puts his hand like this. Right? That's how I envision God being like, come on, death. Sorry, you're out of here. Right? Death is defeated and God is, it's not, just, it's not just that, oh, death is defeated, but God is heaping insult over injury to it. And this was radical news and the focus of the teaching of the early church. That Jesus Christ was not dead, but that he was alive, and it wasn't just an isolated incident. That we too would get to share in that good news. The sacrifice of Jesus was not primarily about getting out of hell and going to heaven. That's not initially what it was about. The good news is that Jesus Christ has launched a rescue mission to liberate us from the very bounds of sin and death that even that cruel mistress of fate and death had lost its power over us. Those earliest disciples of Jesus were truly free, and they had God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, to thank for it. Because of Christ's divinity, he was able to overcome death and is able to provide that same pathway for us. So I'm going to take just a couple moments to close and try to draw some of these theological truths a little closer to home, help us apply in our lives. First, we saw that we can trust that Jesus was God. Even though there's a lot of places where that reality is under attack, there is good historical, biblical, and philosophical evidence that can give us confidence that Jesus was indeed who he said he was. Because if Jesus is not God, I hate to break it to you, but the entire system the entire faith system of Christianity crumbles like a house of cards. But Christ was who he said he was, and we can confidently put our trust in his salvation. 
Because Jesus was God, we can be certain of the fullness of forgiveness, that our debt is satisfied. It's been paid in full. There is nothing that can come at us now. As Paul says in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Jesus Christ. Right? His sacrifice was effective at removing our sins as far as the east is from the west, as the, the Psalms describe. That means any time that guilt or shame comes knocking at your door, trying to make you feel bad for what you did, especially stuff that you've already handed over to Jesus Christ, stuff you've already confessed to him, you can tell it. We've got a no soliciting rule at this house. Go find another house to knock on. Jesus Christ has effectively and unequivocally dealt with our sin and disobedience, our sin and brokenness. Right? As we saw last fall, the goal of this is not a license to sin. It's not just for us to go and do whatever we want to, to, to do to presume upon God's grace. But conversely, we don't have to wallow in that guilt and shame. We don't have to wallow in the enemy telling us that we are less than because of the, the, these skeletons that we have in our closet. God's purged them. But lastly, we trust in his resurrection. Because the grave could not hold Jesus down, we're given hope that it cannot keep us down as well. The early church bet the farm on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They had witnessed his resurrection, and that became the rallying cry of good news, that what was true for Jesus could also be true for us. His resurrection reminds us that this life is not the end of the story. This week, I've been thinking a lot about our dear sister, Helen McCombs. And I've just been grappling again with her passing in October. I really miss her. I miss her wisdom. I miss her attitude. I miss her attitude. She had an attitude. I miss the heart that she had for these communities that we live in. But because of Jesus, I have hope that our separation is but momentary. I will get to see her again. You know, I've spent years. I was, I was a pastor over her for about five years. I spent years teaching her in the faith. And I, I have this, this vision I could be completely out of left field. But maybe when it's time for me to finally pass on into eternity, the fact that she's beat me there and she'll have more time spent with Jesus, that she's going to return the favor and teach me a few things. May we be a people who cling to the deity of Jesus Christ, knowing that his sacrifice for us is complete, it's effective, giving us hope that we're not going to be abandoned, that we're not going to be forgotten by God, even in death, that God's love for us is stronger than death itself. And that's why Jesus came, being in the very nature of God, to loose the bonds of sin and death, that we could be reconciled to God, and that we could be adopted into his family, and that we could live with him forever. Join me in prayer. Lord, this subject matter, sometimes it's easy to read these theological truths on the screen and engage just my cognitive brain of thinking about your salvation, thinking about the reality of your divinity. 
But God, allow this application to break through in our lives. This isn't merely an intellectual exercise. But God, that you are who you said you are, that we can be confident of that. There is just rich history to give that support. Lord, that we would remember your sacrifice. Lord, I thank you for, we're not celebrating it today, but thank you for communion that is a reminder of that sacrifice. Anytime that we can take these intellectual exercises and make them concrete and tangible, may you help us make bridge that connection between heart or head and heart this morning. And we, may we remember your resurrection that gives us hope that this is this life here, however long we have, is just a, a wisp of smoke. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Burns out like the, the grass on a hot summer day. But that you will give us new bodies to live with you forever, to be with you. And in the words of David as we opened with, may we have that rallying cry that we want to be in your tents, to be with you. Not because of what you give us, but because of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.